Okay, we are live with Alexander Mercuris in London and with Brian Berletic from the New Atlas, the amazing Brian Berletic. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always an honor and a pleasure. Great to have you on, Brian. I have all of uh, the New Atlas's information in the description box down below. Uh, their YouTube channel, Telegram, and uh, Twitter as well. Um, you put up a lot of good uh, Twitter posts, Twitter X posts as well. Mm. All of that information is in the description box, and I will also have it as a pinned comment down below. Um, highly recommended to to uh, plug into Brian's work. Mm. And Alexander, let's uh, talk with Brian about the Ukraine conflict and uh, reality that mm. appears to be setting in. Mm -hmm. uh, yesterday, there was an interesting article from Business Insider about mm. uh, Russia's ammo production, and mm. we can uh, use that as a starting off point for this discussion. Very quickly, let me say hello to everyone that is watching us on Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, YouTube, and vduran.locals.com, and mm. a big hello to our amazing moderators as well. Thank you to everyone that is helping us moderate this uh, live stream. Alexander, Brian, pass it over to you. And it is a great honor and a pleasure to have Brian with us again at the start of 2024. May I take this opportunity first to say Happy New Year, Brian, because I haven't had the time to say that. And I should I think we all owe Brian a huge vote of thanks for the incredible work he's been doing right through this war. Because it seems to me that if you actually track the events of this war, you understand if you've been following Brian and you've been watching how the war has played out, it's played out actually almost exactly as he said. We had this huge surge of Western equipment to Ukraine in 2022. It really got underway, as I remember, in April, May, June 2022. And I remember Brian saying they won't be able to sustain it. It's not going to be able to change the course of the war. They can buy time. They can kill many more people on the Ukrainian side, on the Russian side. But ultimately, every weapon that they supply is not going to make the difference. Ukraine is already losing weapons faster than shells, ammunition, all of the rest, faster than um, the West can replace it. And that is exactly where we are now. That's what that business insider piece about the Russians having massively overtaken the West in ammunition production. Um, just to say, Brian and I have corresponded on this question of ammunition about who's producing more we've been trying to work out between us what the russian production numbers are but that they are far greater than those of the west no one denies any war nor do the soldiers the ukrainian soldiers on the front lines and the pattern is repeating itself right across the board in tank production, in drone production, in electronic jamming, in aircraft. And 
whilst the United States was openly supplying weapons to Ukraine, well, there was Brian always going through every single Pentagon <laughs> release as the weapons were supplied. Um, a, a thankless, uh, a grinding task, but he did it. And we could see how, you know, it went up and then it started to go precipitously down. And now, of course, for the last few weeks, it's stopped. So why is this all a surprise to the leaders of the West? Why did Brian, a man with a laptop, <laughs> work it all out when the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of Britain, the European Commission, the Chancellor of Germany, the President of France, with his vast array of intelligence, uh, intelligence analysts, chiefs of staff, all of these huge numbers of advisors, why did they get it wrong? Well, I think that is a question we can't fully answer on this program. The historians of the future no doubt will. But anyway, there we are. Brian, you got it right. Things turned out much as you said. And I don't think there is any turning back. In I think it was your last video. You actually made a brilliant point, which is that all this go-toing and throwing about, you know, how... Congress giving more money for more arms sales. Uh, Jake Sullivan and uh, Avril Haynes telling everybody, you know, we've got to have this money because if we don't, Ukraine will collapse in a few weeks. It's all completely beside the point because the money might be provided, but the arms aren't there. They can't, you can't supply what does not exist. Well, Brian, over to you. Uh, well, absolutely. And, and, the question as to why why this seems to be a surprise to so many people, I mean, that is a very important question. I really don't have an answer. And, and, and people who have followed my analysis throughout the last two plus years now, I mean, they will notice that everything that I'm saying is coming directly from the Western media. So all of this information is available to them. I'm not getting this from the Russian Ministry of Defense or Russian sources. I don't have my own intelligence operation taking place. I'm, I'm getting this out of Bloomberg, Forbes, uh, from the from the Pentagon briefings themselves, they revealed a lot of information mm -hmm. about the, the strengths and weaknesses of what the U.S. can and cannot supply to Ukraine. And a, a, another thing that I think this all uh, lays to rest is this myth that Russia thought they were going to go into Ukraine and win in three days uh, to create the military industrial output that Russia is drawing from to to gain this advantage, this had to be prepared years and years in advance. They knew this conflict was coming probably at least as early as uh, 2008 when uh, NATO backed and trained and armed Georgian forces attacked Russian forces in the, the South Caucasus region. Uh, they knew this was inevitable. They saw the same process taking place in Ukraine, but on a much larger scale. So they prepared for it. And when they went in uh, in February 2022, they were ready. They had this this massive military industrial uh, capacity at their disposal, and and they have been expanding it even since then. Mm. And now now the West is looking at this disparity, and they're saying, what can we do to catch up? You can't you can't catch up in the amount of time uh, that that is left for Ukraine. If you know if there is any time left, and I've. I was looking at the headlines right before we, we went live and I saw a, a Forbes article about how 
Remember, they were criticizing Russia for cutting corners in artillery shell production. Now they're saying we, we need to do that. We need to start cutting corners so we can catch up with Russia. And uh, I was I've been following uh, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of, of Google. He's talking about producing uh, AI uh, enhanced FPV kamikaze drones, which Russia already has and is mm. and is putting on the battlefield in greater numbers. Even if you were able to match Russia in just that, how do you account for all of the other weapon systems and, and ammunition that Ukraine needs but doesn't have? So, I mean, it, it is a disaster that is compounding. Mm. And we have to remember that the, the conflict in Ukraine is not the U.S.'s only front. They are, they are trying to provoke wars along mm. at least two other fronts. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we we, uh, we will come to that because there's a few developments in the Middle East, which I personally consider quite ominous. But let's come to the Middle East in a moment. Now, your point about the Russians preparing in advance, it's actually it's been barely noticed, but it's actually been confirmed in a meeting that Putin had in the Kremlin with a man called Chemizov, who runs uh, Rostec. Rostec, for those who don't know, is essentially the Russian military-industrial complex. It is a huge corporation. Um, it, sometimes it's compared to Samsung in terms of its size in relation to the overall Russian economy. It does huge numbers of things. It builds ships, it builds aircraft, it builds machine tools, it does all sorts of things. But Chemizov specifically said to Putin, we couldn't have done this thing increased production to the levels that we have done if we had not spent the previous 10 years re-engineering uh, and rebuilding and refurbishing our factories. Uh, that's exactly what he said. It's there in black and white, and it happened about two or three weeks ago. So this is exactly right. This is exactly what the Russians were doing. They could see what was coming, and it wasn't so visible because production rates of machines and weapons in Russia before the war, in many respects, was not that high. They weren't building lots of aircraft. They weren't, I think the United States is something like a thousand F-35s now, which have been you know, produced. The Russians' aircraft, fighter aircraft production was much slower. But the reason that was slower was because they were actually refurbishing the factories. Again, anybody who knows anything about industry, about how industry works, knows something, which is that if you're going to re you're going to re-equip a factory in order to increase production, that factory cannot produce. It there is always a time lag, usually several years, before you start seeing the visible effect of that capital investment. So all these Western officials and political leaders and people of that kind who say, you know, we've got to reorganize our factories, we've got to invest, we've got to produce many more weapons to match the Russians. They don't seem to understand this. They don't seem to understand that even if they did all of these things, completely set up new production, order machine tools, get the factories reorganized so that they can produce more, that will only start to have an effect several years down the line. The only way that you can short circuit this is by doing what they're talking about, going over to full total war economy, such as the United States 
was and Britain was during the Second World War, in which every single part of the industrial system is geared towards producing weapons. Then, of course, you can find the resources and the engineers. You just reallocate them to the factories. You do all of those sort of things. And then you can achieve massive surges in production. But no official, no political leader in the West is going to go there. So at best, if they carry out these capital investments, we're going to start to see these production surges in a, perhaps a couple of years' time. And in the meantime, it would not be surprising if production of weapons fell. Because to repeat again, a factory that is being reorganized and rebuilt cannot produce at the level that a fully operating factory can. And and the numbers, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, mm. but, but we've listened to talk of expanding artillery shell production in the West mm. or P Patriot missile interceptors. And when, when you listen to them talk about the numbers that they plan on producing in the future, it's always two, three, even up to five years from now. Yeah. And the numbers, even if they were to achieve these numbers, it's still far less than they, they actually need just in Ukraine alone. And we see that they, they actually need these weapon systems in quite a yeah. few different places and, and potentially even more places than that. Uh, but even their projected expansion of their military industrial capacity is not going to even match, let alone exceed Russia's. And by the way, Russia, like, like you say, it continues to expand even, even right now, even with this advantage. They, they know the West is going to take at least some measures to try to catch up. They want to maintain this advantage. If they can increase the advantage, they, mm. they will if they can. Exactly. That is exactly true. Now, coming back to your programs, the point that you've always understood is that ultimately it comes down to precisely this production numbers. You can have all the tactical genius of, you know, Napoleon, but if you don't have the if you don't have the shells, you're not going to win. You're going to lose. And that is exactly the situation that they find themselves in now. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that any Ukrainian general is Napoleon. <laughs> but the fact is, in fact, they most certainly are not. But the fact is, ultimately, it is a game of numbers. It the, the side that wins is the side that has the most men, the most tanks, the most shells, the most drones. And that is Russia. And it is going to be Russia for as long as this war lasts. And that ultimately will decide the outcome. Yes. And uh, another problem that I see is uh, many, even Western military leaders who, who, who uh, provide commentary on this conflict, they talk about this as if it is a, another Iraq. They, 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 th they thought, they honestly thought before the, the 2023 offensive that this was going to be like Iraq. Uh, all they had to do was give, give this uh, Western armor and, and weapon systems over to the Ukrainians and they would just be able to steamroll the Russians like they steamrolled the Iraqis. And uh, it, it's just such a divergence from reality. Uh, and, and the fact that their mindset is still decades in the past and they have not, they have not realized that the paradigm has, has fundamentally shifted. And yet they're, they're still driving policy based on these flawed uh, uh, assumptions. And I was, I was looking at Eric Schmidt, uh, his, his other activity, he has this think tank where he advises the U.S. government on 
artificial intelligence and other emerging technology. And the, the whole premise of this think tank, and, and you see this across, across Washington, the think tank sphere, if you want to call it that, maintaining a techno-economic military edge over the rest of the world, and especially Russia and China. And, I, and we've, we've talked about this on our individual channels and in discussions we've had in the past. The idea of the U.S., somehow having an edge over China, which has a population four to five times larger, a larger industrial base, a larger education system, producing millions more engineers, scientists, designers. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. It is a premise that is fundamentally flawed. So everything that they build on top of that, all of these policy decisions, uh, uh, these conflicts that they they begin planning, it's all fundamentally flawed as well. And the, the more they layer on top of this flawed premise, the further from reality it becomes. And we're we're watching the outcome, the disastrous, catastrophic outcome of this unfolding uh, in Ukraine. We're seeing it unfold in the Middle East, and it's threatening to unfold here in Asia Pacific, where I'm based. Indeed, we'll, we'll, we'll come to those as I say shortly. So now I have coined this expression, aggressive attrition, which, by the way, uh, I, I understand is now being reproduced without attribution in the Russian media. But anyway, uh, um, uh, tell us where you think we are in the battle, uh, uh, Brian, because as I said, we've had lots of things going on on the battlefronts. Um, it does. The, there is no general Russian offensive. And I think this is a point which we've been all of us trying to make it various times, but there is no general Russian offensive. But um, reports suggest that Russian, the Ukrainian losses are actually uh, uh, spiking once again. And you're talking about um, uh, Russian forward planning. There's been some reports coming again out of Russia. This may be, you could take this with a pinch of salt, but they've been saying that this latest assault which captured the south of Avdeevka, planning to achieve it began a year ago. Now, a year ago, the Russians hadn't attacked Avdeevka at all. They were building fortified lines and they were uh, besieging Bakhmut. Uh, um, there was no question, visible sign then, of a Russian plan to have attack Avdeevka. So that gives us some idea, maybe, if this story is true, that how far they do plan ahead. But anyway, where are we on the battlefield? Well, I mean, this is this is another uh, way of seeing the major differences between this and, say, the U.S. war in Iraq is, is because it is a completely different situation. The Russians have to fight in a completely different way. And, and we see commentators say, well, because Russia isn't making these these quick advances, this blitzkrieg across Ukrainian territory it means they have failed. But in reality, no army, not, not the U.S., not a combined European army, no army in the world would be able to advance in this environment. So Russia is doing what, what any other army would if they had the ability to, and that is uh, pursue a strategy of attrition. As you say, a, a, a aggressive attrition, this is what they have been doing all along. And uh, the, the, the idea of them going on a big arrow offensive, the, the problem is as long as Ukraine still does have anti-tank weapons, minefields, enough manpower to defend uh, most of these positions, uh, yes, Russia could do a big arrow offensive, but it'd be extremely costly, as, as costly or more so than, say, the Ukrainian offensive last year. So why, why do that if you have the resources to attrit your enemy instead, to wear them down, 
wear, wear them down. When the defenses crumble, then you incrementally move forward. This is what they've been doing. This is how they took uh, several Donetsk and Lizychansk, uh, Mariupol to a certain extent, Bakhmut. And now this is how they're surrounding Adivka. And this is what they're doing all along the entire line of contact. And they're, they're putting pressure everywhere, all, all along the line of contact. Mm. Uh, and what they're waiting for is any local breakdown in, in the defenses that they can exploit. Eventually, and uh, you've talked about this as well in, in your daily updates, eventually there, there will be a collapse of Ukrainian fighting capacity, either locally or across the line of contact. That's mm. when we will see uh, Russian forces take advantage of that and then maybe advance more quickly uh, mm. along the battlefield. And we've actually seen that uh, Pasnia, uh, this this was uh, before Bakhmut, when they took that, that was a that was a key fortification along the line of contact. And when that fell to the Russian forces, they were able to very quickly move forward to the next uh, point of contention. So we will see something mm. like that. Uh, to talk of another Ukrainian offensive, uh, and, and we are seeing it. We are seeing it in the Western media. We are hearing it from political leaders. I think even Eric Schmidt mentioned it in one of his op-eds using FPV drones for a, a Ukrainian offensive. It, it is fantasy. It is fantasy. And mm. it, it, will be a, it will be a disaster. Absolutely. I mean, we are at the present time in a period when the FPV drone is very effective but i suspect that's not going to last very long because every weapon this has become absolutely obvious to in this war every weapon you can find a counter to and i am sure that by the time um uh, well by the time ukraine might notionally be ready for a further offensive which it's probably never. Um, um, the FPV drone will have lost its effectiveness because people will have found ways to jam them and to counter them and to shoot them down and to do all kinds of other things with them. So I think this is this is I think another fallacy. Well, there are lots of plans and schemes in the West. There is the advance on Crimea from uh, Krimki. Um, I think you might want to say a little bit about that because that seems to now be, you know, that that idea has been abandoned. Uh, there is the idea of creating big fortified lines, launching missiles deep into Russia. Again, you've discussed this on your uh, channel, but, you know, tell us a little bit about this. And the latest one and it's all over the place, by the way, is insurgency war in a retreat to Lvov. Place Budanov, the intelligence chief, the story now is that he's going to be not just the defense, not just the chief of military, but he might take over the entire government entirely, which is a very disturbing notion. Uh, he is supposed to operate an insurgency war right across Ukraine. Now, I, I would like to talk about a little bit about that because it's an effect what the US tried in Syria. And it didn't work out well there. But let's deal firstly with these two more, shall we say, conventional ideas, the renewed offensive across the Dnieper towards Crimea and the um, other one, go on to the defensive and bombard the Russians with long-range missiles. Why will neither of these work? Well, the, the offensive across the Dnieper River at face value doesn't make any sense. If you cannot... If you cannot conduct a successful offensive across land, 
How are you mm -hmm. going to do it by adding in a river crossing? It, it just does. It never made any sense. I, I always perceive that as just a distraction, a diversion, mm -hmm. an attempt to force Russia to invest resources, which Russia has in, in abundance, uh, to, to and, and then squander your own resources as you send these men uh, to this bridgehead that they have no possible way of expanding and really no way of uh, over the long-term holding. And then it, it collapsed very predictably. And I remember all kinds of people uh, uh, on, on X and on other social media platforms measuring the distance from there to Crimea. It, you know, and, they, and they keep forgetting that New York Times article from December 2022, where they had the satellite images and the maps of Russian fortifications, which were kilometers uh, in depth and layered. And uh, one of the places they they put these defenses was between the the Dnieper, Kherson, the uh, and the Dnieper and Crimea. So they, after they crossed the river, they still have kilometers and kilometers of layered Russian defenses to get through. So it never it never made any sense. Now, Ukraine going on the defensive, we we saw how R Russian defenses were so successful in stopping the Ukrainian uh, offensive. So why not have Ukraine build these type of defenses to stop? Russia. Well, they, they already have. They have had fortified cities built since 2014. They've built it up over many years. They've had pl plenty of time to, to try, test, and, and uh, adapt their defenses to the conditions on the battlefield. And yet Russia, with its uh, abundance of, of artillery and other long-range weapon systems, are able to chip away at those defenses, eventually cut, cut Ukrainian forces off, isolate them and uh, force force them out. We've seen this in, in one city after the other. They, they all had extensive fortifications, as extensive as any of the Russian fortifications during the 2023 offensive. So again, that doesn't make sense. It, at, at best, it'll maybe slow Russia down, but it's not going to stop them. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not comparable. You cannot compare what Russia did to stop Ukraine to what Ukraine's trying to do to stop Russia. There's a disparity in capabilities there. And then this, this idea of an insurgency, when you really think about it, this, this idea of using terrorism and, and other asymmetrical warfare against Russia, this is something that they've been doing all along, but it has no strategic function. It is solely to win the PR war. But okay, you've won the PR war, but you're, you're still actually losing the, the real war. What good does that do you? And what good does transferring everything over to that that strategy how is that going to serve you i i just don't see how i completely agree with all of this now about the uh, uh, offensive through kherson region i think at some level there might have been an idea of getting the russians to divert resources away from the main front lines of course what ended up happening was that it was ukraine that ended up diverting more of its resources it suffered the greater attrition and um, the the sunk costs fallacy seems to have taken hold in a particularly dangerous way in terms of this crossing of the Dnieper because uh, logically it should have been abandoned months ago and yet they've kept on sending more and more men to die there uh, in, in, in a most dreadful way actually and i can't help but think that again part of it was at british urging because being in london the way the british have been sort of urging this operation on has been deeply distressing i mean really i mean 
it's another one of the things that Britain has done, which has left me deeply ashamed. Now, about the fortified lines, I think you're absolutely right. There is absolutely no conceivable way that Ukraine, in a condition of war, with its economy shattered, is going to be able to improvise defence lines that are superior to the far stronger and deeper defence lines in Donbass, which it is in the process of losing. I mean, it, 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 I, that whole idea is an absurd one on its face. This whole thing, I can tell you where it came from. It came from an article by Jim Webb and George Beebe back, back in the summer. They said, look, this offensive isn't working. What Ukraine should do is go on the defensive and try and build fortified lines to hold back the Russians. And But they also said, and use that time to open negotiations. And, of course, what's happened is they've taken the second part of that recommendation, uh, and the first part, sorry, of that recommendation, build the fortified lines, but they've ignored the second. They've ignored the part about opening negotiations. That go can't, can't continue. That can't happen. So the fortified lines, Fortress Ukraine, it is an absurd... It's an absurd idea. What about this idea of using long-range missiles to strike at Russia? The Germans have had cold feet about it, um, but others are still keen on it. The British are coming up with a very complicated plan that the Germans give their missiles to the British. The British then go on giving missiles to Ukraine. Ultimately, it's a way, obviously, to get the Taurus missiles to Ukraine through this roundabout way. But... What about that? Is that going to make a difference? It it isn't because they have already been supplying long range weapons to to Ukraine. They've uh, the Storm Shadow and Scout air launch cruise missiles. The Taurus is also an air launch cruise missile. Yeah. Uh, whether there it has a long a little bit of a longer range or not, it's irrelevant because uh, the the current air launch cruise missiles Ukraine has, uh, they they fire them in mass and they have to take off in, in warplanes and launch them, which risks the, the few warplanes they have left. They have to launch them in mass. They don't they don't have the, the number of warplanes to launch them in large enough numbers mm. to overwhelm Russian air defenses. Mm. Uh, every once in a while, one will get through and, and hit something. They sank a, a, a landing ship, mm. uh, one landing ship in an entire port that is that is operating, contributing yeah. to the logistics of the Crimean Peninsula, you would have to launch uh, missiles, have several missiles get through, hit, hitting that port on a regular basis throughout the week, every single week, and you'd have to repeat that process at every single port in Crimea to have any sort of impact uh, to isolate it like, like they imagine that they're going to. And they simply do not have the number of warplanes or cruise missiles in, in the collective West to ever do this to ever overwhelm Russian air defenses and achieve this. So again, it, it comes down to PR value. Yes, we, we we will get these Taurus missiles and we can convince the public, especially the Ukrainian public, that this is still somehow doable and they'll continue investing uh, their lives, their energy, their their mm. time into this this endeavor that, that is in reality utterly hopeless. Can I just say, I've been looking at numbers of Tomahawk cruise missiles. Now, there's not been yet public discussion about providing Ukraine with Tomahawks. And if they did, that would be a major escalation. But again, the numbers of Tomahawk missiles in stock is not 
as big as many people think. It's apparently around four and a half thousand. Now, that may sound like a lot, but apparently the Russians have already launched 500, 500 um, air-launched cruise missiles over the course of January of this month. So, again, the numbers, there is a clear discrepancy in numbers. And, of course, the United States cannot give 4,300 cruise missiles to Ukraine. It can't give up its entire arsenal of land uh, of of tomahawk missiles and there's been commentaries now which i've seen i can't remember where i saw the last one but the the point was that the united states can launch an awful lot of cruise missiles what it classically does is it launches a lot of cruise missiles in its first salvo but then it would anyway have problems sustaining that because production of these missiles again is relatively low so it you know you 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 would again be running after your tail trying to keep up with yourself you'd be giving missiles to the ukrainians that quickly run through the available stockpiles and then you'd end up being short yourself it was very interesting um researching this because I'd assumed that there were tens of thousands of Tomahawk missiles around. And again, what do I know? It turns out that that's entirely wrong. And, and if you look at how many missiles to, in total that Russia has uh, allegedly mm -hmm. fired throughout the, the special military operations, over 7,000. So yeah. uh, just, just what they have, and, and they continuously have uh, you, you know, scores and scores of them available every single month. So clearly their, their production is up and running and, and they have the ability to sustain this. And we're talking about a U.S. that has 4,000 something Tomahawk cruise missiles, which they cannot afford to give Ukraine, just, just like they really couldn't afford to give Patriot missile systems to Ukraine because now there was already a critical shortage before they sent them to Ukraine because of the, the conflict between Saudi Arabia and Yemen for, for years previously. Now, now they've sent them to Ukraine the sh critical shortage is even worse. And again, just, just as you say, the, the ability for America to uh, ramp up production, it simply doesn't exist. It'll, it'll take years. And even at that point, the amount of Patriot missiles that they're, they're producing will not, will not match uh, the, the number of incoming targets they will have to intercept. People have to remember too that it, it's usually at least two interceptors for every incoming target that is what air, air defense teams are usually trained to do so you have the you have the 7000 incoming russian missiles just missiles not not even talking about drones so that this is uh, t twice that you would need in terms of of interceptor missiles and the west simply doesn't and why and why doesn't the west have these vast numbers of, of weapons available in, in their stockpiles or their ability to produce them because for decades they spent their time on these small wars pushing around uh, failed states, developing nations, non-state non actors. This is what they spent decades doing. They, they reconfigured their, their military industrial complex and their, their collective military to fight those type of wars. Now they're faced with a, a large-scale conflict, possibly to <coughs> a near or peer adversary. I also think, but this is a topic for a longer discussion, I think, that, that, that there have been, uh, that there's been a very significant erosion in the US industrial base and a corruption within the military industrial base in that 
the military industrial base has for a very long time now not been geared to volume production of usable weapons. It's on the contrary, it's structured in a in a manner that makes that all but impossible. But that's a big topic, and you know, Rodout will return to it in another program. But what I wanted to come to now is this insurgency, this idea of an insurgency. Now you followed the war in Syria, as I did, by the way, very, very closely. That was essentially what they did in Syria. Um, a, a, a insurgent stroke terrorist campaign. What well, a lot of people don't know about the Syrian war, though, is that the only reason that got anywhere close to being successful is because these so-called insurgents also operated to a great extent like conventional militaries. They actually captured and occupied ground. How do you run an insurgency if you've already lost the ground, that is already a problem for me to understand. But I think that, I mean, it would be a disastrous idea. It would not work, certainly not against the Russians. And I think the kind of callousness and cynicism it shows towards Ukrainians to try to propel their country into something like this, for me, it's astonishing. And, and I don't think that it'll work because if no. you if you look at the the composition of Ukrainian society before this began, there there are large percentages of people who identify as Russian speaking Ukrainians. Uh, they have an affinity toward Russia. There's none of this animosity that I think the the West imagines or wishes existed in places that that Russia now considers its own territory. We've heard all all of these stories and we've read in the BBC these fantastical tales of Crimean. Uh, 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 Tartars uh, rising up and having these clandestine networks where they're they're going to rise up eventually and and take over Crimea. It's it's a fantasy. is is not going to happen. It was never going to happen. But this is this is the the refuge of the desperate. They are they are so desperate. They don't know what to do next, and so they're they're considering these options, which which are not viable. But yeah. They'll, they'll try anyway, just like they've tried uh, the 2023 offensive, just like they they tried the, the offensives in, in 2022, the Kharkov and Kherson. Re, you know, re, remember, people were saying even back then they should go on the defensive and they should negotiate. Imagine if they did the how, how much better things would have been for yeah. Ukraine than than now. And it'll just get worse and worse the longer they, they postpone negotiation, which is the only way this is going to end for them in, in a but, positive way. Yeah, but negotiations emphatically being ruled out. And by the way, a growing panic in Europe. We've now had um, the British, the outgoing military chief, the head of the armed forces in Britain. And he's come out. He said, we need conscription. We need to reintroduce conscription in order to prepare for war with Russia. Now, the reason that, and the Estonian defense minister, going back to our earlier discussion, she's come out and said, you know, um, the reason uh, uh, we're in such trouble is because we underestimated Russia's ability to crank up arms production, which I find particularly strange from Estonia, by the way. In Estonia, you would have thought that having been a part of the Soviet Union themselves, they would have known a little bit more about how Russian industrial systems actually work. But anyway, uh, panic in Europe, definitely. Uh, you can see it, but still an adamant refusal to countenance negotiations. 
Um, how does that work? I mean, you know, why why this ceaseless belligerence, even when you know you're losing? I, I think they understand well. Russia is not interested in invading any NATO state. They they did not even want to do this. This was something that they were forced into. Again, go back to the 2019 Rand Corporation paper extending Russia. They laid it out what they were doing to, to antagonize and provoke Russia into a conflict. But they also warned that if you if they do manage to provoke Russia to a large scale conflict, it'll be catastrophic for the West and, and especially for Ukraine. So we see this unfolding. But we have to look at the actual people driving these policies in, in Washington, in London, in Brussels. They are not actually paying any cost at all for this. Yeah. Everyone else is paying the cost for them. And as long as that's the, the formula, they have no incentive to stop and they're not going to stop. They will just continue. They, they know that it's not going to end up in their country. Russia is not going to invade their country. It's just Ukraine being decimated. So they don't care because they never, they never mm -hmm. cared about Ukrainians. It was very clear. They had no interest in Ukraine's future. They were using them just like they had used Georgia. As you point out, Alexander, many times uh, they used Chechnya and the people there finally realized that they were being used. Uh, and so th this is a process that just continues to repeat itself because there is no cost. There, there are no consequences for them. So they will continue doing it. This is why even as things go disastrously in Ukraine, they're, they're looking at a major war in the Middle East and they're still... Uh, provoking and antagonizing China right right within its own borders. Uh, it's it's unbelievable. Let's talk about the Middle East, because there's a development now, which I actually find rather concerning. And that is, I don't know whether you've all been seeing reports about the United States now considering withdrawing its troops from Syria and Iraq. Now, many people see this as a sign of de-escalation. De I am afraid that it is the opposite, that it is the product of a decision that there is going to be a war with Iran. And the United States has come to realize that it can't adequately protect its troops in Syria and Iraq. And so it's pulling them out to get them out of ha uh, harm's way so that it can clear the decks, if you like, for when the missile strikes against Iran happen. Now, we've had something like that happen already. Um, when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan, we were all a little puzzled because it didn't seem like what we expected the, the uh, um, neocon-dominated Biden administration to do. But then sometime after, no less a person than Tony Blinken basically came out and said, we pulled them out of Afghanistan because we didn't want them to be exposed to Russian retaliation in Afghanistan, given what would come in. Ukraine. So it, it looks to me as if the fact that they're talking in this way, they realize now that they can't protect these bases. So they're pulling them out, as I said, to clear the decks for action. Is that your, uh, or is that what you think also, Brian? That, that's highly plausible. I I, yeah. I beg people to go on onto their search engine of choice, type in Brookings Institution, Witch Path of Persia. It's a 2009 policy paper. Uh, these are the people that actually produce U.S. foreign policy. And in this document, it's it's long, but if you read it, you will you will understand everything regarding not not just U.S. foreign policy toward Iran, but this is their their playbook they use toward toward all mm. all other nations and mm. and they make the exact point that you're making if if US troops are in Iraq and we want Israel to conduct airstrikes on 
Iran, that well, they're flying over us, and we will be uh, we'll be complicit in this. Nobody will believe that uh, the U.S. didn't give Israel the green light. So if we want plausible deniability, we have to make sure we're not there. And so now they're talking about leaving Iraq and and Syria. Yes, that that sounds that sounds very plausible. That 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 is anticipation of a conflict. The moment October seventh unfolded, I was certain that going to be used as a pretext. Uh, they, were, they were lighting the region on fire. And the whole point of doing that was to, to replicate the same situation in Europe. They were losing control over Europe. They used war to get everyone back under US subordination. They want yeah. to try to do the same process in the Middle East. And they, they have always sought war with Iran. And more importantly, they have always sought to make it look like they were pursuing peace and it was Iran who was determined to, to go to war with the U.S. And that and if you look at what they're doing diplomatically in the region, that is exactly the, the, the facade that they're trying to put up. And, you know, I don't know if it's working, but that's what they're trying to do. That seems to be what they're doing. But uh, a war on Iran at the same time that you are losing a war in Ukraine seems like an absolutely crazy idea. First of all, how many Patriot missiles are you going to need in that case? Not just Patriots, but e Aegis uh, destroyers and all of these things. I mean, Iran is a big country. It's got a significant industrial base, which people underestimate. Again, it's far from being a backward, primitive country, as I think many Americans imagine it to be. I mean, parts of it, I've never been there myself, but parts of it, apparently, a lot of it, most of it, looks like Europe. I mean, it is that advanced. I mean, the idea of going head to head with a country like that, um, which will have in this conflict the support of the overwhelming majority of people in the Middle East, most of whom are armed. I mean, it's very common in the Middle East for men to have weapons just 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 saying it seems like an absolutely crazy idea and yet we're drifting there <laughs> it, it well it is but if you if you looked at the the prospect of the u.s uh goading russia into a large-scale conflict that that also looked insane yet they they did it and they continued to to deepen themselves in that crisis rather than pull themselves out of it and that now they're doing the same thing in the middle east and they continue to provoke china in Asia Pacific. And yeah. uh, one of the things that I, I think about when looking at this and, and considering how irrational it seems at face value, to them, they feel it's now or never because uh, this time next year, we will be weaker, we will be more isolated. Russia and China will be stronger, Iran will be stronger. Uh, if we just get the ball rolling, if we could just get a conflict going, there's a chance, there's a chance that something might go our way if we could just. Uh, create some sort of order out of this chaos we we create we have the initiative because we're creating the chaos maybe something can come out of it and if you if you think about a, a potential war with china one of the things they they have to do is disrupt maritime shipping around the globe including uh, in and out of the middle east so they're they're already positioned ready to do that and uh, so i just i just get this ominous feeling that they feel they're out of time they they yeah. do not remember they do not pay any any price for this. The the soldiers they send to go die, the civilians in the countries they target pay, but they themselves ha have not yet paid. So for them, it's, you know, now or never. And at what cost? No, no cost. I mean, it, it has a sort of frenetic quality. Let, let's, let's turn to China. I was reading a very interesting piece um, somewhere 
uh, I can't I can't remember where about a meeting that uh, Barack Obama had with Xi Jinping. This is just as Xi Jinping assumed the leadership in China. And the story that right, we have always heard is that Bar Obama said to Xi Jinping, let's demilitarize the South China Sea. And Xi Jinping said yes, but then didn't follow through. Well, we've now learned that actually that meeting did happen. And what happened was the diametric opposite. <laughs> that it was Xi Jinping who said to Barack Obama, let's demilitarize the South China Sea. Barack Obama actually at the meeting said no. So this idea never really, uh, you know, never really flew. But uh, again, constant misrepresentation of what goes on in diplomatic discussions is always going to erode trust, which again, people in the US never seem to understand. But let's come back to the South China Sea. Going to, going to war with Iran is a crazy idea. Going to war with China, uh, Russia is a crazy idea. Going to war with China is stark raving bananas. I mean, it is off the scale uh, uh, insane. Um, we, we've talked about Russia's ability to outproduce the United States in artillery shells. China's ability to do that is orders of magnitude greater. And you only have to look at the steel production figures, which I seem to remember we discussed uh, in another program that we did together. I mean, the, the Chinese dwarf the US in terms of manufacturing. And one of the things that people don't understand is that 2023, Chinese manufacturing grew, despite all the talk about economic collapse in China. Whereas, despite all the talk about the Biden boom in the United States, manufacturing output in the United States shrank. So how are you going to face off against China? I, um, I mean, I'm not a tactical person, but you're going to send all of these warships into harm's way. I mean, it, it, it just doesn't even bear thinking of. And and to achieve what? So, so what, what they're actually trying to do is uh, provoke a conflict either in the South China Sea or over the status of Taiwan. And, and again, if people don't know, go to the State Department's official website. Yeah. It is not a country. They, and the U.S. officially does not recognize its independence. It is officially considered a province of China. And yet the U.S. has a troop presence there. They yeah. arm Taiwan uh, against the wishes of Beijing. And their, their, their military is constantly exercising around Taiwan, and uh, they're in, they're increasing their presence in the Philippines. They're preparing to use the Philippines as a proxy. Mm -hmm. They want Japan to stand in as a proxy. They're getting Australia ready to to act as a proxy. They have spent decades trying to overthrow governments here in Southeast Asia to at least isolate China, if not transform countries here in Southeast Asia into belligerent proxies against China. So this this is something that they've been trying to put together for a long time, and now they're out of time. And if you if you look at even countries like Japan, South Korea, even more practical people on the island of Taiwan themselves, they don't want war with China. They like working with China. They they are making money. Uh, development is taking place for uh, Japan and South Korea, especially because of uh, U.S. attempts to cut cut China off from semiconductor technology. They, they have huge investments in China. They're losing billions of dollars because of this. There are US companies that are using, losing billions of dollars because now they, they're not allowed to do business with China. And what is China doing anyway? 
they're they're circumventing all, all of these attempts to to isolate them and impede their technological progress. They're they're putting out chips that they're supposedly not supposed to be able to produce. And again, it goes back to fundamentals. Look at the fundamentals of Chinese society. It's not China of the 1980s or the 1950s. It has a it it is a bigger population, industrial base, education system, human resource pool. They're going to do this. And if you if you know Chinese people more closely and you understand the century of humiliation that they went through because of U.S. Mm-hmm. and European uh, colonization, there's there's almost nothing that they wouldn't do to prevail in this. It's, remember, the U.S. crossing the entire Pacific Ocean to pick a fight with China. <laughs> and, and, and I was just listening. I, 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 there's a friend of my channel that sends me many clips in private from all of these think tanks. And there were... U.S. Air Force uh, officials and and acquisition uh, officers talking about how they need to overcome the fact that they're trying to fight China on the other side of the Pacific, and it never occurred to them that they why are why are we doing this in the first place? It doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense at all, and so. I, it, I, mean, I have to say, putting it like that also reminds me of what you said about the, you know, the attacking Crimea with a river crossing in the way. It's like attacking a superpower that is industrially far stronger than you with putting an ocean, <laughs> the Pacific Ocean, in the way. I mean, it 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 makes, I mean, no military strategic sense at all. And um, yesterday, I had a conversation with Sophia Midkiff. I don't know. Um, well, our, our viewers probably know her. She's Chinese and she follows Chinese affairs extremely closely. And she made a point to me, which I did not know, which is that the basis of the um, rapprochement of the United States and China are three communiques that were signed over a fairly long period. And the third communique, which was signed by Ronald Reagan, no less, in the 1980s between China and the United States, committed the United States in writing to reducing its arms scales to Taiwan. Um, The United States was supposed to, over time, bring the amount of weapons it was supplying to to Taiwan to zero. And of course, it's actually now going in the opposite direction. There's a talk about a $10 billion arms uh, build-up sale to Taiwan, um, supposedly to rearm the Taiwanese army. And of course, again, the Chinese point this out and they come up against this wall of denials and evasions and assurances that the United States still supports the one China policy and everybody can see that it is the opposite. So again, uh, reckless belligerence um, I'm going to say what it all reminds me of. I mean, I'm talking now, you know, historical time. You talk about the fact that they feel that they're running out of time. That was very much the feeling in Berlin um, in the run up to the First World War. They could see the industrial growth of Russia. They sensed that things were, you know, beginning to, uh, the Germany's opportunity to establish itself as the great new world power was fading. And so they decided to go for broke and they started a world war, which ended, of course, in their defeat and in the collapse of Europe and um, a, a collapse from which, in some respects, Europe has never recovered. But anyway, it's eerie to see all of that being repeated all over again. 
And, and think about what the U.S. did to Russia, the expansion of NATO up to its borders, the, the Minsk agreements, the fact that we now have uh, French and German leaders admitting that it was just a ruse to buy time to, to arm Ukraine. And then when we look at China's obviously a, a watching all of this and they're they're taking notes about how the U.S. is violating these communiques that they, they sign and are supposed to uphold. And just think about how in the Western world, because of the Western media and the way they spin everything, how, how ordinary people honestly believe that it's China bullying, somehow bullying Taiwan, which is not, again, which is not even a country. But uh, I, 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 I swear, go read the BBC. They will never mention it in any of their articles that Taiwan is not a country. They, they, they never mention one way or the other. And they use that ambiguity to deceive people. And so this is how they're, they're keeping this whole thing going. And I, and this goes back, brings me back to Eric Schmidt and his, his little think tank about keeping the US on, on top of China. I, I just wonder when you've got a clean piece of paper out and you're doing the tally, US population versus China's industrial base, uh, everything, when you're adding everything up and you see how many advantages, how China has all of the advantages, what are you adding to the, the US column that makes you think somehow all of those advantages don't matter. And it's this supremacist yeah. mindset that we have yeah. seen in the West for generations. And unfortunately, it's still prevalent today. And then between that and their sense of impunity, what, what incentive do they have to, to, to join the human race and, and work together with people rather than attempting yeah. to continue subjugating them? I, you know, they, they're stuck. They're stuck in the past, and mm. uh, it's going to take a serious jolt to wake them up. And I, 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 one one last thing I want to add on this point is that you can see the multipolar world being very patient. They're being very patient. They're exercising tremendous restraint. They don't want a catastrophic conflict to, no. to destroy everything that they've built. And in many ways, I just fear that the U.S. will will seek to 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 go to the extreme burn everything down and hope that they can rebuild faster than everybody else. I, I like yeah. like a Dr. Strange uh, love sort of scenario. I, you know, that's my greatest fear. I don't have any evidence to, to, to substantiate that fear. But, uh, you know, I, I just want because what why else? They have no chance of succeeding. Why are they doing this? I agree. Well, Brian, I think this is where I'm going to stop. I'm going to hand over to um, Alex. Probably we have some questions that could be put to you. And Alex, over to you. Yeah, let's get to some questions. Uh, real quick, Brian, um, Eric Schmidt is a Cypriot citizen, by the way. Yes, he, uh, yeah. he got a passport, one of those golden yeah. passports from okay. Cyprus. Couple of years ago, interesting. So uh, I think that that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And also, Alexander, um, I was uh, reading this morning that the Pentagon had to come out with a statement and say that they are not uh, leaving Syria. Yeah, no. because of because of all the publications. Yeah, no. Like foreign policy, they freaked out. Like the neocon publications, yeah. they freaked out just at the at, at the hint yeah. that the U.S. was going to leave Syria. So I mean, they're they're so boxed in. Yes. They, yeah. they can't do anything uh, no. with regards to Syria. Um, anyway, uh, let's get to some questions. One sec. Let me open it up. All right. Danielle says, "May maybe I have missed this update, but where is General Sudovikin? Well, he is uh, apparently in he's apparently still on the active list in Russia. He's been sent on missions to Africa. But um, one of the unfortunate side effects of the Prigozhin affair is that he was burnt. His reputation was burnt because of it. 
and he's been put he's been put on ice. He's no longer commands the Russian air force as he did, and he's no longer the commander in Ukraine that he was. And there are many people who say this is really unfortunate because, by many accounts, he's a very talented officer and highly regarded by the troops. But as I said, he made errors of judgment in getting so close to Prigozhin and uh, Wagner, and he's paying the price. Uh, Stian, welcome to the Drag Community. Alexander Sisiolas, thank you for that super sticker. Justice is now, thank you for that super sticker. Uh, Jonah Games, welcome to the Drag Community. Savina, welcome to the Drag Community. Matlas X says, how long can the U.S. arm Ukraine, arm Israel, fight Yemen, and fight in Iraq and Syria, and arm Taiwan, Brian? I, I mean, if you if, if you follow the Taiwan situation, they are complaining about a multi-year backlog because they they have not been able to produce the weapons that they're supposed to be supplying Taiwan, and it's actually not even related to them supplying Ukraine with weapons. But any weapon that they're supplying to Ukraine that also needs to go to Taiwan, obviously there will be a backlog there as well, an additional backlog. So th the answer is they they can they can always find weapons and send a certain quantity. To, to all of these places. The problem is it'll never be sufficient for a, even one of these places, let alone all of them. That is that is their problem, and there's no way for them to get around that. Paul Walker says, the West's collective delusion has been brought to the fore. Shovels, washing machine chips, and economy and tatters. Bricks Collective Defense Pact helps. Said Mom, Mama Alaska says, thank you, gentlemen, for all you do. Many blessings. Stan Tall says, a good treaty with Russia versus one good kick. Well, Bismarck once said, the secret of politics is a, the secret of success in politics, a good treaty with Russia. But yeah. what treaty can we now have? <laughs> I mean, when, we, the, when trust is gone, how will they trust us to any kind of treaty? Nicholas Kemp, welcome to Drag Community. Angelo Giuliano, hello, Angelo. Thank you for that. Super chat, Axel O says, thoughts on Texas constitutional border crisis? Brian and Alexander, you have yeah. any thoughts on what's going on in Texas? Well, I, I, the, the I, 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 I have been following the developments and I'm not going to pretend that I'm up to speed with all of this and with all the minutiae and all the rest. But if it is indeed the case that Texas, or at least the government of Texas, are defying a decision of the Supreme Court of the United States, then I think that's an extremely dangerous development indeed. And it would start appealing away if it were to continue the federal process in the United States. I think people in Texas need to take a step back and think very carefully about what they're doing. I um, This is my own view. <laughs> if people want to argue with it and explain why I'm wrong, I'll read and listen very carefully to what they say. But I, I find this unnerving, even if you don't agree with this decision. Think carefully about what you are going to achieve if you straightforwardly defy it. My sense is that probably the government in Texas understands that very well. And they won't want to lose control of the Texas National Guard. And they'll go through the motion of defying it and then will quietly when they can uh um accept it. it it's it's hard to tell where uh political sideshows and distractions end 
and mm. actual American dysfunction and division begins because there, that you know, the border issue has always been a wedge issue that that governments have used to distract people. Uh, why are the all these people coming over the border in the first place? Because over the decades, the U.S. has decimated the Americas. They've they've stirred them up, divided them, overthrown them with coups, and all the U.S. has to do is stop doing that, be a good neighbor assist in actual real development and you wouldn't even have a border problem. Uh, so so this has always been an issue they've used to hype people up, get them scared and get them paying attention to that rather than, you, you know, the, just the wholesale exploitation of the U.S., its resources to, to build empire overseas. Tanya, welcome to the Drank Community. Uh, Beltane says, thank you. Eric Hatchett, how is it that I, a high school dropout, can see the end result of this conflict, and these university-educated people can't. Germany already said they can't even fight a high-energy conflict for two days, same as the Brits. Two days? In the case of the Brits, that might be rather optimistic, actually. Yeah. Matlis X says, also give credit to Alex Vershinen for his article, Return of Industrial Warfare at the Royal United Services Institute. Absolutely. In mid-2022. Mid he, he, he did, though in fairness, I ought to say, because I was following Brian, he was already saying things before Alex Vashinin. But Alex Vashinin has written brilliantly and very well. And I don't you know, want to take any um, credit from him. But what has become of him? I haven't seen anything by him for a very long time now. Unfortunately. I mean, that, that's what happens yeah. when you actually understand what's going on and you try to mm -hmm. explain it and it clashes with the fantasy people want to indulge in, you, you get put away. Yeah. OMG Puppies says, historian Richard Poe argues that the American Civil War was a British color revolution still trying to destroy the USA. The Russian fleet guarded American ports to deter European invasion then. Well, this is a very, very complex story, which I'm not really going to get into the mix into the mix of it now, because, of course, um, I should say I studied this period. So I, I know very well that the, the, the British did undoubtedly support the Confederacy to a very great extent in the in, at that time. No question about this. But um, one can't uh, I, I think one can't use color revolution language to describe the events of the 1850s and 1860s. It was a lot more complicated than just that. And certainly the Russians backed the United States, the uh, British backed the Confederacy, the, the United States won. You can't say, however, that that was a Russian victory or a British defeat, because what then happened was that the United States very soon afterwards went into alliance with Britain. So, you know, these are historical things belonging to another time. I haven't read this book. I, I think that color revolution is not the language I would use for the events of that period. Uh, Anas Belak Shahab says, we are witnessing a massive push to kick America out of Central Asia and the Middle East. Putin wants to end Russia collective West problem for good. I, why do we always bring up Putin? I mean, I, I, I agree with this. I mean, I, he wants to see the Americans out of Central Asia. 
But, you know, it's not just Putin. You know, many people, other people in Russia want that as well. Many people in China want it. So do people in Iran. And so do a great many people in Central Asia. It's the fact is the Americans are not wanted there, not just by, you know, the great powers that are already in that region, but by more and more and more of the local people. And a concerted push, it's concerted because the Americans have provoked it. They've come as the agents of chaos and people who want peace and order and to be allowed to get on with their lives, want them out. Uh, L. Doomer says, a top-notch guest for a top-notch program. What do you guys think about the Digital Services Act, CBDCs, and digital IDs? Will the losing West descend into totalitarianism rather than fix its problems, Brian? I mean, all, all of these things, these are these are different types of emerging technologies and they could they could be used to help make a, an economy work more efficiently or they could be horrifically abused to subjugate and 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 uh, you know terrify its population and i i think we've seen the west descend in, in into this mentality for since the the war on terror really i mean they had been building up before that it accelerated during that period and and now that things are really falling apart and only only set to get worse. I can only imagine that that they will try. They they will try to use this technology and everything else at their disposal uh, to 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 create a tyranny. Yes. Milos says, "Great work, guys." By the way, just got my Duran baseball cap. It's nice. Thank you for that, Milos. And from Odyssey, fractured fractured zero one says, "Texas Governor Abbott cited the state's rights under the Constitution when under an invasion." Please read up. Well, true. But of course, um, he's arguing not with uh, you and me. He's arguing with the Supreme Court of the United States, whose function it is to uphold the Constitution. I I I'm not going to get into an argument about who's right and who is wrong in this affair. But it, 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 this whole thing is unnerving to me. And like Brian says, I don't know how real this argument is. I suspect at the end of the day, we'll see Texas back down. But who knows? Monty105 says, will the UK and France try to build a coalition of the willing to go into Ukraine in order to prevent a shameful collapse? What do you guys think? Well, you know, if the British army marches into Ukraine, all 20,000 of them, I mean, they won't survive. And the effect on Britain of doing a thing like that is just unthinkable. You know, um, way back, we brought him up before Bismarck. Um, he was asked by the Kaiser what would happen if the British invaded Pomerania, you know, one of the provinces of Germany. And Bismarck said, I'd send the police to arrest them. <laughs> and I'm not saying it'd be quite as bad a situation today. But I mean, you know, it's these are not practical ideas. And that there are people in Britain who do talk in this fashion is really very indicative of the level of illusion that exists here. Brian, any thoughts? No, no I, I, I agree. I, I have always been worried about uh, a, a US-led coalition yeah. trying to carve out some sort of buffer zone inside Ukraine. I don't think they're interested in fighting the Russians directly, but mm. I don't know uh, how they see this and if they feel that it would end up inevitably ending up in fighting Russia, then maybe they'll they'll think twice about it. But 
but then again, they be, be, they become increasingly desperate. And as they become increasingly desperate, they become increasingly dangerous and irrational. Everything they're doing is utterly irrational. <coughs> uh, pathetic Albion says to our guest, Brian, how long would you predict until we see a serious casualty in the Red Sea? Who, who knows? I mean, anything yeah. could happen at any moment. Uh, the, the, and the U.S., don't forget, it's not beyond them to try to stage something or, or to deliberately invite some sort of catastrophe to use as a pretext. And this is yeah. all, all that they've done throughout their history. And if, if they really want to accelerate things, they, they will create the conditions in which it will happen. Yeah. Paul Walker says the problem is the West can't admit or accept defeat. Lakeva, La thank you for that super chat. Envy Stormin, welcome to the Drayan community. Salila, thank you for that super sticker. Tyler Durden says, remember Gonzalo Lira. Absolutely. Commando Crossfire says, are the Saudis still at war with or in Yemen? They're in the negotiate. There's there's a ceasefire, and they've been involved in very long negotiations with the Houthis to try to um, agree a general settlement and for the moment at least the Saudis don't seem to be um, interested in re restarting the war so at the moment they're not actually fighting but there's no agreed peace and and, and just to add to that the, the US the British whoever else is joining this coalition attacking Yemen uh, Saudi Arabia with US and British backing had been waging war on Yemen for years not not mm. just by air and missile strikes they also conducted a ground invasion mm. and if it, it, it failed to to mm. change the situation on the ground the, the Ansar Allah uh, Houthis also known as <coughs> Houthis they're still they're still there their capabilities seem to have actually increased over these years so ju just to keep that in mind as the US and UK think they're going to solve this with airstrikes and missile strikes. It, it it didn't work before. There's no reason it's going to suddenly work now. And me, thank you for that super sticker. Marcelo says, great analysis as always, Mr. Berletic. Uh, Nick Mastilovich, thank you for that super sticker. Anas Bela Chehab says, is Russia pursuing reverse colonialism instead of destructuring, destructuring civilizations and picking them off BRICS goes to the most influential power in each civilization builds structuring nucleus around it. I, I, I find that a little complicated. What you seem to be suggesting is that the Russians and others are coming together and are forming basically a multipolar system instead of a centralized system in which there's one or one small group of countries that dominate the others. I think that is probably true. But then again, it isn't just the Russians. The, the, the BRICS is a group of countries. China, India, they don't take instructions. Brazil, they don't take instructions from Moscow. So that, in a way, makes the BRICS even more dangerous from an American point of view. I mean, when it was Washington versus Moscow during the Cold War, Washington could always speak to Moscow and get Moscow to agree to you know, rein people in or cut off arms supplies or do something like that. It can't do that with the BRICS because the BRICS is a group of great powers rather than just one great power that is also the adversary. Uh, Matt Vey, thank you for that super sticker. Not a banned account says, will the federal versus Texas border conflict heat up? 
I don't know. This is a, something which we would need to discuss with people who are closer to US politics than I am. Um, I don't know whether it will heat up or die down. If I had to put money on this, and I'm not a betting man, I would say it will die down. But, you know, I don't know. Uh, Zahir, thank you for that super sticker. Paul Walker says, Eritrea refused to provide clearance for a flight to Djibouti by Berlin's foreign minister, according to the aircraft's captain for yeah. Annalena 360. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Annalena Baerbock uh, trying to fly to Djibouti found that she had to uh, uh, go stop over in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia because uh, the Eritreans wouldn't let her fly over Eritrea. Um, well, there it is. I mean, it's uh, um, Annalena. She's not very welcome in many places and will become less and less welcome in more and more places. She's lucky that she found uh, um, the Saudis who were prepared to let her go through. What are you doing in Djibouti, by the way? Just asking. <laughs> Paul Walker, uh, Brian, that landing ship was already sunk once during the SMO. Wouldn't be surprised if the RUAF are using it as a decoy for an opportunistic attack. It, it, it's hard to tell either way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything strategically or even or even tactically. All it does is demonstrate how ineffective the, the idea of giving Ukraine long range missiles actually is. They, they, they cannot achieve anything of strategic value with them. Just these these PR stunts. I just wanted to say to that that Brian actually did a really good uh, analysis of this and he pointed out that in order to sink this one ship ukraine had to launch lots of missiles carry out a very complicated intricate operation uh, what it actually shows is the impossibility of blockading ukraine oh sorry crimea with missiles you would have to replicate this incredibly complex operation you know, it's like a hundred or a thousand fold. It can't be done. Uh, it, it was, again, a PR victory and nothing more. Uh, Snark Guy says, Texas is equal to the new Donbass soon. Gosh. Interesting. Uh, let's see here. From Monty. Uh, Will, oh no, wait, I read that already. That's on the UK and France coalition. The hockey goalie. Thoughts on UK's call now for a citizen army due to poor recruitment. Panic seems to be setting in alongside Sweden after years of neglect and bad management. You reap what you sow when you chastise your history and culture. Well, I mean, this came from, as I said, the Sir Patrick, oh, I can't remember, he's, he's Sanders. Um, Sanders, that's right, who is the head of the army. And he said, you know, basically he was calling for a return of conscription. And again, I, I think what it demonstrates once more is that the British military leadership don't watch Brian because if they did, they would have understood things an awful lot better, especially about Ukraine. And the British had invested very heavily emotionally, as well as, you know, in, in monetary terms and in terms of their own equipment in Ukraine. And they had very, very high hopes of Ukraine's counteroffensive in the summer. And that its defeat has come as a profound shock. And you can see the panic starting to take hold in Britain when they've now realized finally that when they're up against the Russians, they're up against the Colossus 
and they don't have anything that they can throw at it. So that's it's a sign of panic. But of course, it's not strategy. It's not policy. The British population will not accept conscription. And within um, just a few hours of this story circulating, Downing Street, the British government rushed out a statement saying that there will be no return to conscription in Britain. Oscar N. asks, Brian, if Israel sends a missile at Turkey, will NATO Article 5 work? Turkey and Iran are together against the war on Gaza. I don't, I don't, I don't foresee that ever happening. I don't think Israel would launch a missile at Turkey. I think they would probably, pro if anything, they're going to launch an attack on Iran. This is something yeah. that they've written about for many years. That's what would make sense. If you look at the relationship between Turkey and Israel, it's very complicated. They, they do have ties with one another. Uh, the, the leadership there has to be hard on Israel because of their considerations for their own population. But they cooperate quite a bit with Israel, especially yeah. during the U.S.-led proxy war against Syria. That was, a, that was a joint enterprise between Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Israel, the U.S., the British, the French. Everybody was involved, and they were all working together, even though superficially, they would sometimes appear to be at odds with one another. That was solely for public consumption. So I, I really, I don't see that happening. Sparky says, great to see Brian on the Duran. Curious enthusiast asks, Brian, when China is pioneering the social credit system and Putin is considering one of the absolute best allies, and Putin is considered one of the best absolute allies by Zionists, is it not ideal to be painting them as a lesser of two evils. It's two wings of the same exact UN bird. There's no social credit system. So this, this person is extremely misinformed. And this story of a social credit system came out of the, the Western corporate media. So you got that story from the very people you, you seem to think you're opposed to. You need to become a little bit more informed. I've, I've done a whole video, by the way, on the social credit system where even the articles accusing China of having the system admit in the body of the articles that it doesn't exist. So I don't know how carefully this person researched it. I've also I've, I've been to China and I know many people from China uh, and I know many people in China here in Thailand. So uh, and, and I asked them all about social credit system. They have no idea what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, and on the question of Putin, his relationship with Netanyahu and uh, has completely broken down now. I mean, they've had two telephone conversations since the events on the 7th of October, and apparently both of them were very tense. There wasn't actual shouting, but apparently it didn't go. Neither, neither went very well. And if you follow um, events closely in the UN, it's the Russians who have been leading the demands for a ceasefire and who have been most critical of what the Israelis are doing in Gaza. So that entire relationship has essentially collapsed. And I, I would just add that a lot of countries have relationships with Israel. It does not mean that they're endorsing yeah. Zionism or even the current administration in power yeah. in Israel. People have to remember that uh, Russian, Chinese, even Turkey, their, their diplomatic outreach is sophisticated. It is mature. And they don't just on a, on a whim or because of emotions cut ties and, and not. They know that you have to talk. U.S. And, and Europe, they're the only ones that talk in absolutes and and cut off diplomatically nations and, and not talk. They're the ones that do that. And you can see what the outcome of that. It, nations have to talk 
more even when they disagree. And so uh, an association between Russia and Israel or China and Israel, really, what 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 does that mean? Does that mean that they endorse everything that they're doing and vice versa? I you know, really don't think so. We have to be a little more sophisticated the way we examine these, these relationships. Mm. Sparky says the U.S. continues to try and bait countries into war worldwide. Mm. Yeah. Elza says, Gonzalo and you have been right since the beginning, but it's almost two years of war now, and the West is still talking about refrigerators and washing machines. It makes yeah. one hopeless sometimes. It, 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 this failure to understand Russia properly, and we said this many times, is the greatest intelligence failure that there has ever been. I mean, it exceeds anything else that has happened before. I mean, you know, the Germans in 1941, when they started their attack on the Soviet Union, they also completely miscalculated the size, diversity and strength of uh, Russian industry. and that. But that was then. And of course, there was far less ability to obtain information um, in, at that time than there is today. Today, it should have been very straightforward to get a true sense of Russian capabilities. It is incredible that it didn't happen. It shows, it proves conclusively that our intelligence services are wholly unfit for purpose. And there really ought to be, which of course there won't be, a massive reckoning about it. Uh, Tool Fate H says, uh, Brian, will a new capital in Lviv make the threat of military false flags on Europe by Ukraine more likely as a form of pushing the EU into keeping their support for the war? But this was always a, a this, this wasn't Ukraine asking for help from, from Europe and the United States. This was the US and Europe transforming Ukraine into a battering ram and using mm. Ukraine. So at any, at any moment, the West decides to drop this battering ram and, and not use it, it, it will collapse. And carrying out some sort of terrorist attack uh, somewhere inside Europe to coerce Europe, I don't think that's going to work very well. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think the West will react to that very well. Mm -hmm. Anmi19 says, Alexander, can you please explain why the U.S. can't have strong Russia in Europe? What is the downside for the U.S.? Is it the money system? What does the U.S. have to lose if Russia gains influence? No, but I, this is one of the great unanswered riddles. Uh, uh, because, of course, um, going back many decades, even, you know, I remember it being talked about in the 1970s. It was widely understood then. There were articles about this, that a strong relationship between the United States and Russia would serve US interests. But the reason it has never happened is because Russia is a very big, very, very powerful country. It will never accept subordination to the United States. It always insists on being treated as an equal partner. And of course, for the Washington elite, that is intolerable. They will never accept it. And that's why every single attempt going all the way back to the detente period of the 1960s, has ended in failure. Every attempt to create good relations between Moscow and Washington has, en has ended in failure. It is ultimately because of that. Uh, my info asks, Brian, what about the use of WeChat in China? You have to pay via WeChat for everything. It's not social credit system, but you have to have a mobile and a payment system in your phone for your person. 
if you use WeChat? Does WeChat. Have, is, 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 is everyone in China have to use WeChat? No. So I, you know, again, again, ask yourself where you're getting this information. If it's coming from the Western media, why, why do we all agree that they're lying about absolutely everything else? But China's the one thing they're telling the truth about. I, I guarantee you that they aren't. And if you're uh, going to YouTube channels where the Western media has has uh, uh, entrenched themselves further back because no one trusts them. So they go to these YouTube channels and they put out information there. Again, do your own research. Think for yourselves. We're, we're supposed to be open minded and question everything. Uh, we don't we don't like China. Why don't we like China? Ask yourself that and ask yes. yourself if there's a rational reason for that. And your your fears about China, where did they come from? And and start from there. Actually start asking yourself why you're so critical of a place you've never been before. Magna Mentis says, my pleasure of all of you are a daily source. All of us like to see others thinking alike and reaching identical conclusions, even more so once they were proven to be 100% spot on. Keep up the great work. Thank you for that. Uh, Mariola, thank you for that super sticker. Torger, welcome to the drag community. Jay Kumar, thank you for that super sticker. And uh, Sparky says, go answer Allah, fight the power. Mm -hmm. Curious Enthusiast asks, China became as powerful as it did because America and most of Europe gave most of their infrastructure to China. You really think that China isn't grateful for that? They, are, they all still share diplomacy. Well, again, they do. The Chinese are about diplomacy, but this constant idea that people have that China became powerful and strong because somehow, you know, we helped them to, we, we, we lifted them up to this level. It completely underestimates and it's entirely wrong about China. China became strong because it is big and large and it has a hugely educated population with enormous industrial and entrepreneurial skills for most of its existence. And the Chinese state is the oldest state in the world, by the way, just say for most of its ex existence, China has been the world's richest and most powerful country. And it is becoming that again. This is simply a return, actually, to the historic norm. It doesn't seem like that to us because our history, our, under, our, our knowledge of history is um, fairly uh, shallow. We don't really see much beyond the 19th century. But, you know, if you if you follow Chinese history overall, you would know you would see that that is true. And, um, you know, my uh, wife um, was a student at, at Keyes University, at Keyes College in Cambridge. And one of the fellows at Keyes wrote this man called John Needham, wrote this huge book, a huge series of things about China, science and technology in China throughout the whole period of Chinese history. And it gives you a staggering picture of Chinese industrial and technological and scientific innovations throughout Chinese history. Gunpowder, <laughs> um, compass, all of those things, they're just printing. They're just the tip of it. So as I said, don't underestimate China or think that it only got to where it is because of the grace of the West. It wasn't like that at all. And again, if you've ever been to China and you see with your eyes how hardworking 
uh, people are there. They they did that themselves, and they did that despite the West, not because of the West. Mm -hmm. The West was in the process of colonizing China, uh, so it, it was their own hard work. It was their own sense of self-preservation and their own desire to restore their their country back back to its dignity. That is the reason why China is the way it is today. Is it's not. And you're all looking at China today. They have things that don't even exist in the West. So where where did they steal that from? And there's this there's this this misconception that if it, a non-white society has something great, they they had surely had to have stolen it from white people. And it's 2024, and we we really we got to grow up and and wake up and move past that. Michael Morris says, this is one of the big problems about media on China and Russia. We have been fed assumptions, which when we weren't paying attention, it stuck sadly. So admittedly, I have wiped old assumptions. However, it would be nice to get balanced reporting from China, the rough with the smooth. With the smooth. There's always some rough, so let's have it. We all, oh, do. We all do in various degrees, no biggie. Oh, absolutely. And if you go to China, I mean, I was there in 2017. And to give an example, there was still in those days an awful lot of pollution in Chinese cities. I understand that problem has significantly abated since then. But one of the things that, again, surprised me was the open way in which people were complaining about it. So, yes, there are lots of things in China, undoubtedly, which are wrong. And, you know, I, I'm not saying I don't know China with the depth that, um, you know, would be necessary to sort of do a breakdown and discuss and identify its problems and the faults in its society. But, you know, of course they exist. But the problem is, if we're talking about the rough and the smooth, in the West, we only get the rough magnified by several times and we never get the smooth. Uh, another China question from Ronald B. Is China's birth rate now collapsing? And if so, doesn't that imply a collapse of Chinese influence in a few decades? The birth rate. And look, any, any demographic problem China has, the West has, has had for much longer and is by far much worse. <laughs> and the West is by far less equipped to deal with it than China. Uh, China is able to organize itself on a level the West cannot, and if they are determined to overcome this problem, they will. Uh, same goes for Russia. Russia's, you know, oh, demographic, uh, you know, they're they're surpassing us, but don't worry because they'll they'll kill them, so they'll all die on their own. I mean, this again, this is clutching at straws, and and you have to ask yourself, where did these narratives come from? Why am I repeating them? Sparky says, "Build a better world with bricks." <laughs> NGS says, we rarely hear from French-speaking experts. Have you considered, perhaps, with uh, Glenn Deason to interview, for example, Jacques Baud or Emmanuel Todd? Well, the answer is yes. And uh, Ar Arthur Tizat says, great job, all the best in 2024. Following you for the most honest information. Good to see Brian on the Duran. Can we have Jacques Baud from Switzerland on? Well, there you go. Yes. You go. Uh, neurosurgery. Uh, Highland says, is a plan to destroy the economy to blame Putin and bring CBDCs and create technocracy and destroy democracy and control everything in the Western world with impunity? You know, that might be the outcome. Whether exactly it is the plan, I, 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 I am skeptical. I look at these people 
And I say to myself, I'm not sure that they are capable of coming up with such a plan. But uh, I always come back and I say this, if there is such a plan and the people who are launching it uh, think that, you know, by destroying everything, they'll be able to achieve this outcome, they won't. If you try and ride chaos, you are riding, you're riding the storm. The storm will blow you away. It, it it cannot succeed. The people who are trying to do it are just creating a disaster, which will sweep away themselves. Uh, Commando Crossfire uh, would love to see joint BRICS space program, the moon, question mark. Do you know yeah, well, anything I mean, about space programs? Well, exactly. I the, Chi the, Chi the, Chinese, the Chinese and the Russians are talking about a joint moon program. So, I mean, yes. you know, we're already seeing evidence of it. So, um, I, I, you know, I, I think that some kind of India has its own space program. And I think they would like to develop it a bit first before they pulled with the more established space powers, China and Russia. But, you know, the Chinese and the Russians are already working together in space and they will do some more of it, I'm sure. Uh, Brian, and, and for people who don't know the, the Chinese space program, their launch cadence is is either on par or surpassing the United States. They, yeah. they were excluded from the International Space Station, uh, so they built their own. And uh, uh, Russia built at least, you know, a significant portion of the International Space Station, really yeah. made it possible to do that. And because they're having this fallout with the West, they'll join China in the future. And yeah. so, so they'll they'll move on together and the West will just, you know, keep doing what they're doing, you know, self-inflicted uh, implosion. Jungle Jin says, what do you make of the incident with Busker Brendan Kavanaugh and the CCP members at the Elton John piano at the St. Pancras railway station? Is this Jungle Chin? Is this is that the YouTube video that's gone viral? Yeah, I agree. Chinese tour tourists telling him to stop. Well, video. Uh, uh, yes, I, I, I haven't I haven't seen this video. But is this isn't this about people being photographed or something? Yeah, like, like Chinese tourists or something telling telling him to stop uh, filming his his YouTube video, something like that. Well, Have you guys I, well, you heard, know, heard about this? It, you know, you have to, if it's if it's an anti-China channel and they go to China and they look for trouble because the BBC does this all the time. They'll they'll go in the middle of the road and start filming, and the police will be like, "You're going to get hit by a car." So they try to get them onto the sidewalk, and the BBC will edit the the the, the frame to make it look like the Chinese police are just mm. dragging them away from a news story. And when you see the the entire the entire clip, and then you see how they edit it, it's such a deliberate uh, attempt. So again, if you if you have any doubts, just go to China. You're able to go to China. There's no restriction to go to China. Go there, see for yourself. I, I guarantee you, you'll be blown away by what you see, and it's not going to be what you expected. Yeah. Um, Sticky Mark says, Gonzalo Lira, rest in peace. John Pilger, rest in peace. There's still time for Julian Assange, but that time is almost up. Thanks for all you do. Uh, love, and love, and love and peace from this crazy old cat lady defrosting in, in Yorkshire. <laughs> Thank you for that. David Lazarus says, Alexander, we now only refer to Putin as the Putin. That's, that's correct, David Lazarus. <laughs> very, very well said. Emil Z says, my take on the U.S. border issue is that the U.S. is getting ready to move their army in the direction of Mexico. The U.S. wants to make sure... Their south is under control. 
But just start another war. <laughs> that's 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 the answer to everything. Uh, Moon, Moon Dragon says, if Brian was put to lead the SMO, what would you have different? Or would you do the same as it's now? I, Brian, I think I think I would be. Yeah, I, I mean, because I, I, I don't have the, uh, the ability to even really answer that because you you have to understand things on on a, a high level, also a deep level to know what what you would and wouldn't you do. But I, I look at what they're doing and it makes sense. And uh, I was looking at what they they were doing from the beginning up until now. I've you know I've made predictions it, to a certain extent. Uh, I and mean, people can look back on, on my older videos and, and judge how how accurate I was. But I I think I would probably do the the same thing. You 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 you're fighting a war of attrition. It's very obvious that 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 is the advantage they have. You play to your own advantages and you go after the weaknesses of your enemy. And uh, in terms of attrition, I, I can't think of something that is more clear cut than that. Mm. Dida Pong says, it seems that Alexander has never heard of nullification. Defying SCOTUS is built into the fabric of the U.S. Yes, I mean, this is exactly the kind of... I have heard of nullification, by the way. But um, I, I, I would... I, I, I have to say straight away, I am not an expert in these things. And nullification, I think, is a rather tricky thing to apply in a situation like this. I mean, bear in mind, if you go down this route, if you simply say, I'm not going to accept certain laws because they don't suit me, then you are at risk of tearing up the entire fabric of the whole legal system at a time when, as I said, things look extremely precarious. But look, I, 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 I hear everything that people say. I know about nullification. I just don't feel that this is an applicable case. Sparky says the failure of the Confederacy in the U.S. Civil War caused Britain to turn things up in India for cotton. Huh. Uh, the British didn't just tighten up in India. They began to become very, very interested in Egypt as well. And it was in the 1870s that the British started to move into Egypt. And already in the 1860s, they were heavily, heavily investing in Egyptian cotton. And, um, of course, they gained control of the Suez Canal in the 1870s. And they sent their army into Egypt in the 1880s. And I've always myself felt that Egypt's problems really began then. Mm -hmm. Elliot says, uh, thank you for the great program. Um, Brian, if the Houthis strike at a U.S. military ship, would it trigger Article Five of NATO? I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I, I think that that is NATO in NATO territory, isn't it? Wouldn't it be? Yes, I, I, I I'm sure it would not. Is the short answer? Mm -hmm. yeah. G. Davidson, welcome to to the drag community. Electro Hobby, thank you for that super chat. Uh, Miss Me With It says, is there any concern over BRICS having a gold back, gold back currency? Wouldn't just using their own currencies and keeping sovereignty over the dollar be better? Wouldn't it cause homicidal gold rush in Africa? There, there is no plan to create a BRICS currency. Um, and there is, uh, 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 and to have it backed by gold, that plan does not exist. What there is a plan to do, or at least what they're working towards, is creating a 
financial system that will function outside the dollar system, which is a completely different thing. Mm. Uh, Hammer 88 says, try to invite Carl Za to talk about China. Yeah. Elliot says, would Syria be in BRICS anytime soon? Syria seems strategically very important. Well, this is unknown. <laughs> um, I think that for that to happen, um, a lot of other things have to happen in the Middle East. But you know, I wouldn't say it was inconceivable, but I do think it's the priority at the moment. Stefan says, remember Gonzalo, understand what's going on. Yeah. Brian Digital says, how much longer do you think the USA can run 12 supercarriers around the globe? I love you guys, by the way. Well, um, I, I'm not, I mean, if you're talking about does it have the means and resources to keep operating supercarriers? Probably it does, and probably for a very, very long time. But why would it, why does it want to do that? I mean, what, what, what actual, you know, what does it act, what do these supercarriers provide that the United States actually needs? We see that there is a supercarrier operating now in the Gulf of Yemen. Gulf of Aden, and still the Houthis are able to destroy ships. So, I mean, it, it's, it seems to me that there is a colossal mis mismatch here between resources, uh, uh, between the resources needed to operate these things and the actual military effect they have. Obviously, if you want to terrify and intimidate countries and to devastate them with major air and missile strikes and having these floating air bases is gives you a tremendous advantage over them but as we have seen in military terms maybe they're not quite as effective as uh we were all led to think just saying Lada Moreau says i hope china will help russia to build high-speed train systems imagine travel one day from moscow to vladivostok instead of seven it would be amazing it has been talked about, but I'm going to say something. In Russia itself, high-speed rail has always been a little controversial because this is unlike, say, Japan or China, which have gone heavy into high-speed rail. China, uh, Russia has very, very low population densities. Cities, and they're, they're very big cities, are very, very far apart from each other. So the view, and it seems to be swinging back to this now is that high speed rail really doesn't achieve very much in Russian terms. Russian railways are better organized as, you know, long distance, long, not high speed trains. And for high speed travel, what you need to do is to build a, um, a strong network of airlines which can then bind the country together, which is what the Soviets did, by the way. They also experimented in the 1970s with high-speed rail, and they decided it really wasn't um, optimal for them. And they instead developed to a very high level, uh, more so than people know, um, a very dense network of um, air links, which basically tied the country together. Uh, curious enthusiast says Zionism is the ideology that religiously pushed the one world government agenda under a book that must not be named. Guess which two figures are both Zionists, Putin and Zelensky. Both are against you. 
No, I, I mean, as I said, Putin is Putin is certainly not a Zionist. I mean, I think I think we we need to be absolutely clear about this. As I say, his relationship with uh, Netanyahu has completely broken down. He's now strongly supporting the establishment of a Palestinian state, and uh, I, I I don't have any doubt at all that this is his sincere beliefs, and he's working very hard to move towards that direction. So I, you know, I, I this myth of Putin, the Zionist, is, I, I don't know where it comes from, but it's simply wrong. Well, uh, you know, imagining everyone is is a Zionist and this is the source of all, all problems. I mean, maybe yeah. you should look yeah. for a, a new house in Western Ukraine or something, because this is, you know, again, if you follow the money and you trace the, the networks carefully, you will see that the U.S., the British, before them, they used Israel as a proxy like they have used yeah. so many other nations around yeah. the world. That The fact that people have in their mind inverted it and they imagine because there's, there is there is a big Israeli lobby in the U.S., but every country the U.S. Uh, uses as a proxy has a lobby in Washington. It is yeah. the modern-day imperial court. But, but people overemphasize this. You have entire groups that have dedicated their lives to imagining this threat built on some very toxic ideologies from the past mm. uh, but follow follow the money and be realistic does a little tiny country like israel have have the economic military ability to control the united states uh, and you have to explain map it out for me show me how and maybe you'll convince me that somehow they they have more money power military force that they somehow can coerce the the, the you know, poor, poor Monsanto and Lockheed and Boeing and all these corporations in, in the U.S. I mean, you'd have to do that to convince me. Hmm. W. Lim says, does America have a national identity if it is no longer the exceptional country guided by manifest destiny, if it is only one among many? Well, um, I think that it does have a future. Absolutely. I think that the United States can put this all behind it. And, you know, there's the American people, there's uh, uh, the um, Constitution, there's the economy, there's all of these things. There's no reason at all why the United States could not be a prosperous and happy country um, if it focused on itself. The problem is that there are some people who think otherwise and we should not be we should not fall into the trap of thinking that they're right. I mean, I, I was reading you read it all the time in the literature that the neocons produce, that the United States is not simply a country, it is also an idea. They never quite explain what that idea is supposed to be. And that if we start reigning in and you know don't interfere in every other country in the world and try and expand all the time, we're somehow betraying that idea and therefore the United States. I think this is very slippery thinking. And it leads into all kinds of tragedies. And the founders of the United States would certainly have rejected it. Rysis asks, is Russia developing larger yield of vacuum bombs, Brian? You know what I think? No, I, 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 I don't. I, I haven't heard about that. A greater um, greater yield. I mean, everything, they're, they're building bigger and better of everything. So probably, I would imagine they're probably, probably it wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Johan, thank you for that super chat. Anas Belichahab says, I've heard Israel blocked sales of advanced weapons to Saudis and the UAE, both from Biden and Germany. The UAE switched, switched, switched to China 
Saudi following and Abraham, Abraham Accords have de facto collapsed. Any ideas? Well, I, I mean, I haven't heard about this, but if the Saudis have previously sourced weapons from China, by the way. This isn't new. And uh, probably they will source weapons from Russia before very long. This isn't this isn't new also. Uh, I, I get to say something about the arms trade in the Middle East. It's a very complicated and very dirty business because all of these countries buy far more weapons than they ever use, um, often at very inflated prices. And the reason they do that is not so much because they need these weapons, because generally they don't. Many, many of these weapons end up in warehouses and simply rot there. Um, they do it because it's their way of buying influence and support in the countries that they are buying those weapons from. So when you hear that you know the Israelis blocked sales of advanced weapons from European countries to the Gulf monarchies, it might be a rather more complicated story than it appears to be. It might be more a case of people in Israel not so much wanting these countries to become militarily strong as wanting to you know, close off access, uh, access to influence by Middle East powers in you know, European capitals. Sparky says, make Ukraine Russia again. Sparky also says, don't even leave a patch named Ukraine. At least it remain a NATO playground, carpetbagger, money laundering, and becomes a BlackRock property and base for Bay of Pigs style invasion. There are more and more Russians are coming around to that view. Commando Crossfire says, watch the movie Armageddon. Recently, the U.S. truly had a brief window of time when the whole world looked to them. It could have been great, but greed and hubris turned the king corrupt. Mm. Uh, w. Lim says, Mersheimer has explained why the U.S. will never allow another regional hegemon, a near-peer competitor. It constrains U.S. freedom to act as it pleases. Exactly. But what a disaster that has proved to be for the United States and the world. Now Spock it's not even possible for them to do I mean, it says they're not allowed. Well, who cares if the U.S. doesn't want to allow you to? They're, they're doing it. They're doing it anyway. Yeah. yeah, Jeff Bickford, thank you for that super sticker. Jonathan, welcome to the drag community. Spock 23.0 says, Native Americans were monotheistic, the great spirit Allah Akbar. I know nothing about these things. Um, that worrisome, you better, says, 2012 woke from a nap hearing the bricks in the wall, had no idea that what was going what that was going to mean until years later and heard of the BRICS nations. Go figure. Okay. All right, let's see here if we have some more questions to wrap up this live stream. Uh, Sparky, did we answer this one? Yeah. Uh, Russia's capabilities and improvements over the last 20 were not kept secret, but the U.S. and other Western intel relied on reports originating in the 1990s, then copied and pasted each subsequent year. This is profoundly true. I mean, you know, I, I, I the, the, the Russian city I know best outside Moscow and St. Petersburg is, is Perm. And of course, in Perm, there's a big factory which makes aircraft engines. In fact, uh, Perm is the center of aircraft engine design, jet aircraft engine design in Russia for civil aircraft. And it was 
entirely easy to see the work that was being done there. You could visit the factory if you wanted. I have a friend of mine who regularly visits Russian factories. He's an engineer. He's been to all of these places. He's spoken, he's been to Chelyabinsk. He's been to uh, uh, um, Ural Vagon Zavod, the big factory in Nizhny Tagil. I've never been there myself. But, you know, these are not, you know, secret facilities. That's why I say the failure of Western intelligence is astonishing, and it begs a multiplicity of questions. And and uh, they have a channel on YouTube. I mean, it's one of the only Russian channels still on YouTube, Combat Approved, where the, the Ministry of, of Defense uh, just does entire documentaries on new Russian yeah. weapon systems. They've done this yeah. for years. And I, I used to watch them before the special military operation. It's like, oh, yeah, OK, yeah, sure. It's the best in the world. Of course, you would say that because <coughs> this is the Russian <coughs> government presenting their own equipment. But now you see it performing in the special military operation in almost everything, not everything, but almost everything. Everything that they presented in these documentaries, which you, you can still go and watch, is yeah. true. And if you watch that, you would have stopped that. And they and they even explained, you know, we focus on air defense and electronic warfare because NATO doesn't. They focus on air superiority. So we we focused on this to balance it out. And and now we see the the effect of that on the battlefield. Mm. It's absolutely true. So it's a fascinating channel, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Borkan says, rest in peace, Lira. Never forget him and many others who have died in Palestine and everywhere else. Brian, nice to see you, brother. Looking fashionable as always. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, super chat. And Euro Gabor says, hello, Radio Duran. BJ Alex, could you play Dr. Alban? No coke, please. I'm sending it for a guy called Alensky. To have Difka with a message, raise your hand up in the air while holding a white flag. <laughs> Interesting comment. Uh, Tool Fate H. H says, could you speak about the Russian nuclear plant being built in Egypt, please? Very interesting uh, it's, project. Uh, it's a very interesting project indeed. And of course, it's in kind of in a kind of a way, it's a geopolitical return for Russia because back in the 60s, they built the Aswan Dam. And they were heavily invested in Egypt at that time. And then they were pushed out. And now they come back in. And you see them building these big infrastructure projects. And it is. It's, it's, it's going to make a huge change in Egypt's economy. They're building also an industrial park in Egypt. Um, all of these things. And again, notice the difference. It's not financial aid. There's no none of the sort of political packaging that comes with this just going in there building a nuclear power plant setting up an industrial park doing all of those sort of things of course the chinese do all of this on a much bigger scale harry c smith says russia and china have already begun planning joint scientific lunar bases for everyone to use to be permanently inhabited by no later than 2035 well there you go David Falconer says, well, peace. OG Wall says, Alex, what is a Duran? <laughs> Tabernak says, multiply and empower your foes. Strategic comedy. Paul Walker sure. says, with North Korea being recognized as a nuclear power and with hypersonic missiles, will this be an added deterrent in the region? If so, when will Biden stand back off? Great discussion. Thank you to all. The North Korean buildup is entirely a product of bad 
U.S. policies. I mean, I think this is the first thing we need to understand. In the 1990s, there was a there was an agreement. North Korea, which was in a terrible state in the 1990s, uh, they did this trade-off with the Americans. They would abandon the North their nuclear program, which was barely existed at that time. It was in 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 a in a yeah, I mean, the country was not capable of running a program like that. Um, but they would end that in return. The United States would open trade relations, would supply North Korea with uh, pressurized water reactors. It all seemed to work. And then it was the usual people came along. They said, we can't possibly have an agreement of this kind with the North Koreans. We've got to achieve regime change in North Korea. The economy there is in a terrible state. All it needs is a push. And of course, the North Koreans, seeing all of this, seeing that agreement torn up, seeing the attempts again to change their government, they did exactly the thing that the United States said that it wanted to prevent. They developed nuclear weapons capability and then a ballistic missiles capability and now possibly a hypersonic missile capability all at a speed which I think nobody in the United States ever imagined and the extraordinary thing is that despite that total failure the US persists towards North Korea with the same policies so when Trump wanted to meet Kim Jong-un and come to some kind of an understanding with him, the entire foreign policy establishment worked overtime to prevent it. And uh, now, of course, the North Koreans are talking with the Russians. Putin is supposed to be visiting North Korea fairly soon. Um, I don't know where all this is going to lead to. Um, I'm not particularly concerned about it myself. I don't think North Korea is looking for war actually in South Korea or Japan or anything like that. Why would it want to? But I think that North Korea is now an increasingly powerful country in military terms. And my own suspicion, my own belief is that this announcement by Kim Jong-un that he's not going to seek forceful uh, unification with South Korea, I think what he is now going to start to do is he's going to to focus more on domestic economic development. That is my own personal belief. Uh, Jerry Coogan says, we need to know each panelist's favorite ABBA song, please. Oh, I don't remember very much about uh, ABBA, I must say. It's <laughs> very much uh, 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 something I can remember from the 70s, but it's such a long, long uh, uh, ago, wasn't there something a clown queen or something like that? I mean, I, I, mean, I mean, really don't remember. <laughs> <coughs> um, let's see. Edwin Edwin Vargas says, "Is there hope for the U.S. and Europe?" Brian, is there hope yes. for the U.S. and Europe? Alexander, is there hope for the U.S. and Europe? You say yes. Brian, is there hope for the U.S. and Europe? Eventually, these these circles of special interests driving Western foreign policy, what they're doing is unsustainable. It will collapse. And hopefully a, an alternative uh, circle of interest will take power that will seek to work among all other nations rather than this obsession with imposing themselves on all other nations. And then, yes, America and Europe, they will have a future. They're going to have to abandon this this obsession of superiority they are not superior to anyone else on earth and if they can get this idea out of their mind 
that can start working together with everyone else who, by the way, is moving on without them. And they you notice how Russia, China, no matter uh, how egregious the, the insults and the threats are to them, they, they try to leave every door open, every bridge intact for, for the West to finally cross over and, and act rational on the global stage. So yeah, I, I do think that that there is a future. It's going to be rough though. Bill Pegler, thank you for that awesome super sticker. Sparky says, Israel controls the US by kicking back funds given to it by the US Congress back to individual US congressmen. Yeah, so, does the, the, yeah. so, so does Ukraine. So does Ukraine. On a massive scale. Ukraine a mass scale. Yes. Edwin Vargas says, will the US shift to Latin America if it fails in Europe and Asia? Well, who knows? The United yeah. States yeah. has never left Latin America. I, mean, <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, there we go. JF, thank you for that super sticker. Uh, Runya says, now that Sweden is preparing for war, Finland say they are ready and Norway is a division of the American Navy. What's the chances Scandinavia will be the new front? Well, I think if they let themselves get drawn into that, then they're absolutely crazy. I mean, it would be absurd. I mean, this is one of the greatest astonishing things. I mean, Scandinavia, Scandinavian countries, primarily Sweden and Finland, had never easy relations with the Russians. But, well, Finland had very close relations with the Russians during the Cold War, and it worked well for Finland. Sweden always maintained its neutrality, and it worked very well for Sweden. They've thrown all of that away without any kind of proper discussion, no referendum, no proper public debate if they're now going to be led into a war well i would say that is compounding folly and bringing disaster upon themselves and again the historians of the future will shake their heads and say why on why why on earth did they ever do it zarael says free assange Mm -hmm. And summer of 1970 says Yemen is the best. Mm -hmm. And Sean Pearl says the U.S. ran out of bombs for Ukraine. When does when does IS run out? When does IS run out? IS. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. Actually. IS run out. Uh, 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 the the Islamic State. Islamic. I State. mean, yeah. I mean, I they know. don't. They don't. They don't. They let, don't use let, the same kind of bombs. <laughs> Sean, let us let us know, Sean, in the in the chat what you mean, and we'll answer that. Do you think the Houthis have access to China, to Chinese and Iran and Iranian copies of the VA one one three Shekhal super cavitating torpedo, Brian? Do you know? <laughs> I, I, no. I don't. I don't know. But they they have a lot of uh, equipment based on Iranian systems. They yeah. they. They were using similar systems on targets in Saudi Arabia that now we see Russia using on targets in Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, if it is a system that Iran has and they think it would be useful, I think they would invest in, in bringing it over and using it. And uh, Brian Digital asks, do you think drones will take over as the dominant weapon systems like the aircraft carrier did during World War II? Well... I, I, you know, this is this is something that the the, the pro-Ukraine crowd has been trying to say that we don't need artillery shells because we can just use FPV drones, uh, and to a certain extent, FPV drones can can achieve things that 
uh, artillery shells, even guided artillery shells cannot achieve. The problem is there's certain things that only artillery can achieve. Uh, Alexander, you've mentioned this many times, uh, uh, volume, just sheer volume, the, the uh, area effect of artillery. That is something you cannot really achieve with FPV drones. Uh, you could only send a certain number of them up in the air at one time, unlike artillery, where you can just continuously pound an area day and night, as, as we've seen. So, okay. so it's 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 a it's it enhances modern combat. I don't think it'll replace. I don't think it'll replace uh, all aspects of modern combat. Okay, when does Israel run out of uh, the bombs? Was it, ah yes. Ah, uh, okay. Well, who knows? Uh, that's a that's a well. It's that that's actually a good question, and I, no. I addressed this right right after uh, October seventh, no. and we all anticipated a an Israeli retaliation and i said at the time they will pay they most most likely pace themselves and that is exactly what they've done this has allowed them to continue this operation in gaza far longer than their their previous operations operation cast lead and protective edge uh, and so they they have their own military industrial base they produce weapons and they're fighting the gaza strip it's is not this it's not on the same scale as in ukraine so in in theory, they could continue for, for quite a long time, uh, a year or more. And that's what they've talked about doing. JC Only Hope, thank you for that super sticker. Brian Digital, thank you for that super chat. Uh, PF Coop says, what could Trump do differently to turn things around? Stop funding Ukraine. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, he made a lot of a lot of very good promises during his, his first presidential campaign. But then uh, instead of draining the swamp, he populated it with the, the biggest swamp creatures on earth, John Bolton, for example. Uh, and so, you know, we have to ask ourselves, where where does U.S. foreign policy actually come from? It comes from these corporate funded think tanks. And Washington is just an interface between the, the foreign diplomats and the American public. And so, it, it, you know, Trump, does he really have the ability to, to change things, even if he wanted to? I don't know. Uh, Tool Fate H says, great stream as always. Please thumb it up, folks. Thank you very much for that. And the final question, and thank you to Brian for sticking around and uh, and answering all these questions with us. Um, J1416 says, how does the West support the argument that Putin basically wants to take over Europe? Where does this idea come from? I don't see much evidence. Well, there's no evidence, there's but no evidence. but but it's just a resurrection of an idea that has been floating around Europe since the 18th century. Every 50 years, they come up with the legend that the Russians want to take over Europe. I mean, Napoleon justified his war against the Russians. But by, by that, I mean, he was, you know, and, and you have all these 19th century cartoons showing, you know, the great octopus that is Russia with its tentacles extending across Europe. You've got all these articles and books in the 19th century that were published at that time, making identical claims. Then, you know, during the Cold War, it was also said um, there's, again, more cartoons, you know, the, the bear, uh, uh, you know, with its claws going to take over Europe. So, of course, it's just, it's just a revival of all of that. That's all it is. Um, it, it's People look at the map, they see how big Russia is, and they think axiomatically because it's so big, it wants to become even bigger, so it's going to come and gobble us all up. And that that's just, just as I said, it's dusted off whenever whenever people need it. 
That's all there is to say. And, and they don't really believe it. And the biggest clue uh, proving that is the fact that they've emptied their, their arsenals into Ukraine, leaving themselves defenseless. They know, but they know Russia is not interested in, no. in crossing their borders and, and taking over Europe. So, so, I mean, that's the biggest clue for ordinary people. If they could just take yeah. a deep breath and, and take a step back, they, they could see that these people claiming Russia seeks to take over Europe. Well, why would why ha, why have they deliberately disarmed themselves if that was true? Yeah, yeah, very true. All right, we will end it there. New Durant coffee cup, not most all, according to Lavrov. <laughs> well said. All right, I saw that uh, today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you to Brian Berletic, the new Atlas. We have all of Brian's information in the description box down below, and I will also add it as a pinned. Comment. Uh, Sparky also says he must fight Israel. And I think that's everything. That's everything. That is everything. All right. Brian, uh, any final thoughts before we sign off? Uh, no, just thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Great to have you on. It's great. And absolutely. It's been it's been a great pleasure, as always, Brian, and, and for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. All right. All right, we will end it there. Thank you to our moderators, Zarael and uh, Gab, formerly known as GEC812, and any other moderators. I'm scrolling through to see if there were any other moderators that I missed, but thank you to our moderators for helping us out on this live stream. Thank you to everyone that was watching us on Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, the Duran.locals.com, and YouTube. Take care, everybody.